Hi guys, it's Sagara here. Today, we are talking about Azovstal, the steel plant in Mariupol, a city now completely destroyed by Russia, which had been the last stronghold of Ukrainian resistance there up until just a few weeks ago. There's a lot to talk about, of course. In this episode, we first wanted to focus on Azovstal's defense from a purely military perspective. So you'll hear a fascinating conversation between my co-host Katerina and John Spencer, a leading scholar of urban warfare. Of course, we couldn't ignore the humanitarian and purely human side of surviving in those terrible conditions at Azovstal. So you'll hear from family members of two Azov fighters who spent weeks at the Encircle plant and are now in Russian captivity. But before we get into all of that, let me introduce you to Azovstal itself. It turns out that this steel plant, just like the Ukrainians at Harvard, has quite an interesting history. Before February 24, Azovstal was one of the major metallurgical enterprises in Ukraine. It employed over 10,000 people, mainly producing various construction parts for bridges, ships, railroads, and other infrastructure. It is often referred to as a city of its own because, well, the plant is huge. Its territory is 11 square kilometers, with tunnels and bunkers that go more than six stories deep into the ground. It began operating back in the 30s, when the Soviet authorities chose this particular site right on the coast of the Azov Sea, which allowed for easy shipment of resources through the sea. During the Soviet times, Azovstal was one of the most important steel plants in the entire Soviet Union. Then came World War II and Nazi occupation. Retreating, the Nazis blew up the main facilities, which were eventually rebuilt after the war. However, This time, the Soviet planners started reconstruction by building an entire underground tunnel system to ensure future protection in case of a war. This is why there are 36 shelters, which can house up to 12,000 people underground. And what's more impressive is that these shelters can even withstand a nuclear strike. Mariupol already saw some fighting in 2014, back when Russia annexed Crimea and invaded Ukraine in the east. Until February 24th, the city was just a few dozen kilometers away from the front line. So, as the number of Russian troops began building up along Ukraine's borders again, the company that owns Azovstal began equipping the premises with some supplies, preparing its bomb shelters for a potential attack. Little did they know, of course, what the plant was about to face. The brutality of the Russian onslaught on Mariupol grows more dire by the hour. Putin ordered his troops to seal off the plant to try and starve the Ukrainians. Mariupol was under heavy attack from day one. Nonstop airstrikes and artillery essentially turned the entire city to rubble. Ukrainian authorities say there probably isn't a single building in Mariupol that hasn't been damaged or completely destroyed. By early March, the Russian army encircled the city, but didn't control it so heavy fighting within the city continued. Azov fighters got a lot of attention in the media, but amongst the soldiers defending the city and Azovstal were also the Marines, National Guard, local police, border guards, members of the Ukraine state security services, as well as the territorial defense and some volunteers. The Russian military spared no one in Mariupol. This morning, President Volodymyr Zelensky delivering a dire warning, saying in a video address that it's likely tens of thousands of people are dead in the besieged city of Mariupol. They dropped bombs and everything, 
hospitals, schools, residential buildings, the drama theater where hundreds of people were sheltering. Some people recalled being attacked simply when lining up near a local store to get bread. But around the 12th of April, all Ukrainian forces had retreated to Azovstal. For the next month, thousands of civilians and fighters lived together at many different bomb shelters at Azovstal's territory. We know that hundreds of civilians spent months in these bunkers. Some nights, Russia would attack the plant with over 50 bombs, leveling the plant and leaving some people trapped under the rubble. Other times, there were allegations about the use of chemical weapons. Russians eventually tried storming the territory on foot, but failed, because one of the few but still significant advantages that our defenders had were the tunnels. So somehow, with little to no food, water, medication, and ammunition, Ukrainian fighters defended Azovstal for months, defying all odds and refusing to surrender. John Spencer, an expert in urban and underground warfare, spoke with my co-host Katerina about how this was possible. On May 16th, Danis Prokopenko, the commander of the Azov Special Regiment, announced that the soldiers at Azovstal had fulfilled their orders and an evacuation of Ukrainian soldiers from the Azovstal plant had begun, marking the end of one of the war's most infamous battles. We won't really know what exactly happened at Azovstal until all of our soldiers are released from captivity and can tell their stories. But today, I'm joined by Major John Spencer, the Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Madison Policy Institute and one of the world's leading experts on urban and underground warfare to answer some of our questions about the feat of modern warfare that was the Battle for Azovstal. Thank you for joining us today, John. We're happy to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So as mentioned earlier, Ukraine has stated that the Azov fighters um, at the plant have fulfilled their orders and their mission is complete. So in your opinion, what exactly was this mission? Yeah, I personally believe that the mission and what they were able to achieve was to hold as long as you could, defend Mariupol and Azovstal for as long as you could, forcing the Russians to not be able to move massive amounts of forces to other locations where there were operational and strategic fights happening as well. And I think everyone is just in awe of how much they managed to do that and for how long they held out. I mean, they were outgunned, outnumbered, with no help from the outside world for almost three months. And so how exactly were they really able to pull off this mission? Yeah, it is amazing. It is historic. To be clear, um, it will already be legend um, as some of the greatest battles in history. Mariupol and Azovstal will go down in history. Um, the story's not over, like you said in the beginning. Uh, there's so much more that we need to learn. But what we do know is that you know less than 4,000 Ukrainian fighters, depending on what estimate you use, were able to hold down and defend a, a city that large of over 200,000 residents beforehand. They were able to hold down up to, depending on the estimate, 14,000 to 20,000 Russian forces and to prevent them from going and fighting in places like Kiev and um, Kharkiv and other places. How they did that, well, there, there is, you know, the, the defender of urban terrain does have some advantages. It's their, their terrain. They know it. Um, they can move and attack and defend the strongest of buildings and fall back. Um, but with that ratio of really 10 to 1, if not more, fighters, it, it, it's really impressive, but understanding the 
and clearly they the Ukrainians understood the power of the urban defense made there's no estimate there really of what the Russians lost in but they made them fight for every inch of Mariupol as we watched this for over 80 days which is I mean just amazing just in supplying yourself and water and food and everything they 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 held for over 80 days and they they fell back gradually defending attacking there's so many videos that we have of you know shooting from a second story floor on top of a russian tank and those were all some of the basic principles of urban defense that they they executed masterfully and will be highlights of my research for a long time to come now i'm sure that everybody will have the question of like yeah but still how as they fell back to this Azovstal factory um, because then you get to the aspect of Mariupol had an underground network, um, as in there there is an underground space. And this is that dimension of urban warfare that a lot of people kind of forget about that. L- l- many of these big cities like Mariupol and Kiev and Odessa have these from ancient to modern undergrounds. And the underground can survive any amount of bombing. So the, so the Ukrainians almost immediately took away the Russian advantage of bombing their way into submission, although they did destroy almost all of Mariupol. And they will just, they wanted to to rule the rubble, I guess, but they destroyed everything, right? And committed all these war crimes. But the underground does, has historically from ancient times until now served as a refuge for the defenders, for the civilians, for the defenders. You can go underground, pop up and attack from other locations. But really on the modern battlefield, you can survive the bombings. So as you saw the Ukrainians having to give up ground as they just outnumbered, like you said, now outgunned, they they moved back to Azovstal, which was a a very unique underground. So th- there's underground and then there's deep buried military targets. We have different classifications. Azovstal is a underground complex of, of miles of underground that goes so deep that no munition could penetrate. Matter of fact, some portions of Azovstal are actually nuclear bunker grade undergrounds that were built over time for military purposes, to be honest. Um, so that allowed for this kind of final stand that is, Mariupol is historic, clearly, um, but Azovstal is, is like this legend of, you know, similar to, although I don't like the endings of some of the legendary stories of Masada in, in Israel, Thermopylae in, uh, in ancient Greece with the Spartans at the hot gates, uh, or stories like the American stories of the Battle of the Bulge, um, defending Bastogne, or even our Civil War. We have these stories that really become a, a part of our national identity. And Mariupol will, will take that identity, I think, for the Ukrainian people. But I can talk more about, now, why does Azovstal become so defendable? Yeah, so I, I am have a lot of questions. So first one, um, specifically about the underground tunnels, there's been a lot of conversation about that and, you know, about Azostal being this ideal defensive fortress. So besides actually using the underground tunnels for shelter and as a bunker, is there anything else that they were using these tunnels for in terms of actual, you know, military strategy and on any kind of offensive, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as you watch this battle, so don't, let's not discredit the amazing urban fighting that the the Ukrainians did in Mariupol as they fell back and you know, they, they used the buildings as defensive, what we call strong points, and, and made Russians pay and pay. Uh, and you can watch in the videos that the Russians didn't know what they were doing in urban warfare. 
Well, once you get into the underground, um, the defenders can use the underground to move without being seen, right? So the like Azovstal is a huge complex. So where do you bomb? And, and they, we we have the videos of where they try to carpet bomb it, right? Because they just don't know where the the fighters are. So the fighters were able to, and in, in the Azovstal fighters were able to pop up in just unknown locations to the Russians, and that's very scary if you're you're attacking. Uh, you just don't know where they are, even though you know they're in that in that facility, which is really where we got to um, when they decided in public statements, Putin said, okay, we're not going to storm this complex because it's impossible to identify where are the tunnel entrances, where are the, where could they pop up from? Because they're com- the, the tunnels come inside of buildings. They're not like this big arrow saying, okay, in, enter here, exit here. Um, the, the entrances allow the attacker to move without being seen. Um, it allows them to pop up in all different kinds of locations, hopefully like even in the, inside the city behind you, uh, and, and beside you. It, it's really hard to attack that when you don't know where all the entrances are. But also the fighters can basically establish with this underground complex. Um, not only can they see records from the bombings, but they also can make it so there's, and I can get into some of the tactics of underground warfare, but if you, know, you we know now that in Azovstal, there was over 2,000 people, you know, hundreds and hundreds of fighters well, well equipped in, per se, and they had weapons. Uh, that's, that's a nightmare for any military to say, okay, fine, I, even if I could seclude this and isolate it, um, to understand, like, if I send anybody down into those tunnels, anybody from one side, all they have to do is shoot and they'll hit anything that's entering the tunnel. So really, you got to put two guys at guarding each tunnel entrance. But the underground is also, it's, it's not like, it's just like, um, you know, being on the surface and you just, you walk downstairs and you're underground. In, in underground warfare, you have to be able to, you, none of your equipment works. So your weapons um, will blow your eardrums out if you're not prepared. You can't see, you can't breathe if you like drop something down there, like a grenade it makes it so that if you're trying to enter, you can't breathe. Um, you, your, your radio communications doesn't work. Your navigation equipment doesn't work. It, it, it is literally the nightmare if you're attacking into it and in the best case scenario, if you're trying to just hold out and defend. Yeah. And I know that the Russians did try to storm the complex on May 4th and engage in close combat with the Ukrainian forces, and they were not successful. And so, you know, what you're saying about the weapons not working, the comms not working. So how much can we infer about what happened then when they stormed the complex? I know we won't know until the Azovstal fighters really tell us the stories, but if the traditional weapons aren't going to be working for them in the tunnels, do we have any idea of what that storming might have looked like? Yeah, I imagine, I agree with you. Um, we know that there was an attempt and maybe even a penetration into one element of, the, of a tunnel complex. So even if, if that looked like a special unit, maybe, even some of your bravest Russian forces, although there's not many of them, um, was able to enter the tunnel and, and and get inside of it. Like I said, if you're standing at the other end of the tunnel and you've prepared, um, they're just going to lose bodies. One, because there's special equipment you need, like ballistic shields and night vision goggles that, that can see through stuff. They, Russians, I know, didn't have that. So likely they found an entrance and it's kind of, um, there is a story, you know, rumors of how they found one of the entrances. Right, but that's the the beauty of Azovstal. There, it wasn't just a tunnel; it was like like we said, it was a tunnel complex. So they found an entrance. 
they probably tried to enter it um, and then faced well-planned resistance. Um, and there's really nothing you can do other than to die if you just keep pushing forward into that entrance and you found. So likely they, were, they thought they may have found a secret entrance um, that wasn't guarded. So they were trying to push fighters into that tunnel um, without being discovered. And, and what it sounds like is that the, the Ukrainians, not that they knew it was coming, but they were prepared. Um, and, and if you have a prepared fighter underground, there's very little you can do about it, except d- either die by keep going forward or back up and get out. And, and that's what we know happened. And I want to ask about something you said earlier, where you compared Azovstal to maybe Masada and a few other historical examples. So I've seen some comparisons to the Battle of Stalingrad. I'm wondering, um, that wasn't one of the comparisons you mentioned. Do you think, what do you think is the most accurate historical comparison if there even is one or if we're seeing something completely new? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so the, in, I, I got a lot of trouble actually when I compared it to those, some of those, because in those stories, they all basically suicidal died in defending to the last man. Um, Stalingrad is an interesting comparison, although it, I mean, it was called the Rat War. So the tunnels were a huge part of it um, and, and why it endured. But um, it was also a battle of like a million persons versus another million you know, colliding. So the, the, the mismatch of numbers wasn't there. Um, it did end by not actually killing everybody, but by surrounding them and cutting them off of supplies. And that's how you, you, the, the Soviets were actually eventually won was um, cutting off the supplies to the defenders because it's so hard to get the defenders out. Um, you know, what analogy works best for Mariupol? I mean, it, it's its own historical story. I think Masada is a good one um, it, of, of just facing an entire legion of Romaniers and, and, and holding for, they actually held for a, over a years, you know, uh, and holding for a long time. But to me, it's the, the legend part. It becomes a part of the national identity that I'm going to hold this ground for my country. And that's the you know, fulfilling the orders. Uh, we also know so that the, some of the reasons that there are, there is something new here is that we know that the Azovstal commanders had communication with the president and others the entire time. Um, that's something new, right? The the Russians were never able to cut them off of communication, right? So they were able to send us stories or you the Ukrainian people videos of Ukrainian uh, you know female soldiers singing. Um, those stories and those videos and those messages um, have more power than any bullets on the modern battlefield because it, that morale aspect of what they're doing. So that that's the part I think of this one. There's like similarities. Like yeah, I think the same thing with the the story of Thermopylae, right? The the, the 300 soldiers, if you believe the historical aspect of that, holding um, and they eventually die, but they held long enough to gain this large coalition of Greeks that would later defeat. Um, so there's some analogy, you know, there's some similarities in all the stories, but there's also some very uniqueness to it, right? I can't think of a unique story where a story of this many fighters held an underground complex with that, the unique aspects of this underground complex. Although there's been you know, plenty of stories from the, the Romans underground in ancient Jerusalem when the Romans sacked it in 70 AD or you know, the, 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 the Warsaw Uprising. But this one has a very unique features, but it will be as legend as all these others. I, I remember, actually, when I was very young, I visited Masada. Um, I don't remember what age. It must have been 
I was under 10 years old and I visited Masada and that was one of my core, core memories. I still remember to this day um, being on Masada and hearing about the legends and I got chills. And as a, I don't know, probably an eight-year-old, it really shaped me and grew up to study security and defense. And so I think wow. that it's it's crazy that these, I think you're you're very right that this is going to be a legend that's going to shape generations of not only Ukrainians, but people around the world. I can't imagine the other young kids like me um, going to Azovstal and hearing the stories and what it's going to move them to do, inspire them to do, and kind of how it's going to shape so many people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. It'll it'll literally shape generations. Yeah. I agree with you. And where does the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, do their graduations to this day? They do it at Masada because it's a part of their national identity. Now, some people argue, like, even if you compare it to the Alamo for the U.S., they'll try to get to the particulars of the story of, like, of how it ended and things like that or, like, who the people were. This is about the people that defended, but now Mariupol and Azovstal already is will be legend for Ukrainians for generations. But I agree with you that people from the around the world once – Mariupol is liberated from Russian control, will visit it for generations, as in this is where a few brave men and women held against a massive horde of evil um, for the good of their country, for the good of Europe. I, I, I'm not under, you know, I'm not exaggerating that. I believe that that will become similar. Yeah, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you because I know the effect that visiting Masada had on me. And I know that, it, you know, people really do feel these things, even if they don't necessarily relate in the same ways. Like I, you know, I didn't have any personal connection to Masada, but I, I felt the spirit and it was, and I know that our stories are going to be inspiring to a lot of people, which kind of brings me, I guess, perfectly to our last question to wrap up. You know, what, um, what lessons are we going to be able to take away from Azovstal? And and not only necessarily just emotional lessons, but even, as you said, this is something that urban warfare experts are going to be really studying um, for decades to come. This is historic. So what are we going to be learning from Azovstal? Yeah, there's lots um, from both Mariupol, the battles, like I've already taken reinforcing lessons about um, how to use the urban terrain to defend, you know, for over any expectation, right? Um, in the Battle of Kiev will be a similar, but Mariupol is very special. Um, and in Azovstal, there's so many lessons here about one, the the, the nature of the underground warfare. Um, I think there are some also very powerful lessons here about the importance of morale for a country uh, and this, this, this ability to talk to those defenders while they're doing it and that back and forth communication. Um, there'll be some lessons here too about what you need to to survive. Like if you're going to prepare a fortification, a castle, um, there is planning and there was planning for this, of course. Uh, we didn't even talk about the heroic uh, resupplies that we were now being aware of, of, of these, again, heroes that um, knowing that they would probably not return, were flying in supplies. Um, so there's some lessons that we'll have to learn too about what supplies were the most vital, right? Water, of course is important as you prepare um, around the world for your countries to be able to defend the underground has always been a very powerful um, resource to you uh, if, if the geography allows it. So there'll be some lessons here about, you know, building 
that amount of resilience and protection, um, but also of the what matters most is the soldiers' morale, the will to fight. And it, it's a two-way street, right? So th- I think that's a huge lesson of Mariupol will be this, how this two-way street of communication and morale, and uplifting and keeping people fighting and keeping international community of like, wow, look at, look at what's happening there has been so important to the war, the illegal Russian invasion in Ukraine. It's been huge. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this was so super interesting. Really, really happy that we got you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Okay. So what it took to defend Azovstal is now a bit clearer. But what was life actually like for people in those bunkers? And what were the soldiers able to tell the outside world with whatever internet that was accessible before finally surrendering in May? Because of the tunnels, the plant was arguably the safest place in the city. Thousands of civilians and fighters lived together at many different bomb shelters on Azovstal's territory. Many of these were families of Azovstal plant workers who knew of the plant's facilities and went there early before the plant was encircled. But not everyone just followed their loved ones like that. In the early days of the war, some came to Azovstal simply because of its proximity to their own homes and no other shelter being available. Others came for resources because they knew that Azovstal still had some reserves of food and water. Ukrainian soldiers that were stationed there stockpiled some food and would share it with the civilians until they were evacuated. For weeks, people lived in near darkness. Electricity was sporadic and generators were safe preciously for only the most important needs, like that of the military hospital that still operated. Some people used the headlamp to get around. This was also dangerous because the light could be spotted from the sky and targeted by Russian drones and fighter jets. Due to the lack of medication, easily treatable wounds often just couldn't be cured. The wounded underwent surgery with no anesthesia, and doctors lacked everything from operating tools to simple bandages. It is difficult to determine the amount of the wounded, but we know that the number was in the hundreds. Some of them died, slowly, surrounded by their family and fellow fighters. The situation got even worse on April 28th, when Russia bombed Azovstal Military Hospital. The facilities were severely damaged. The operation room collapsed, killing some of the previously wounded soldiers and injuring others. Mariupol's mayor said that because of the attack, the number of wounded jumped from 180 to 600. Two weeks later, the Russian military destroyed yet another underground hospital, killing at least 10 people. Finally, in the last week of April and the first week of May, the Ukrainian government was able to negotiate evacuation corridors for civilians. Of course, Russia repeatedly broke ceasefire and attacked evacuation convoys. But on May 7th, the Ukrainian government confirmed all civilians were evacuated from Azovstal. And on May 16th, the first Ukrainian defenders were evacuated too. Denis Prokopienka, the commander of Azov, said that the Ukrainian soldiers, quote, fulfilled their orders after distracting the Russian army for 82 days. His statement was ambiguous, but everyone assumed correctly. The defense of Azovstal was over. In the next few days, Hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers were evacuated from the plant. It is difficult to call this an evacuation, though. We don't know for sure where all of them were taken, but we do know that at least some of them are on the occupied territories of Donbass. 
my co-host Nastya had the opportunity to speak to two women, the wife and the girlfriend of two Azov fighters, who are now in Russian captivity. Here is what the woman had to say. This is Olena. She is married to one of the Azov style defenders, Maxim. He's a fighter in the Azov regiment and is now in Russian captivity, in occupied territories of Donbass. Olena is 25 and has spent her whole life in Mariupol. On February 24th, she was put on the last evacuation bus arranged by Azov for the regiment's family members. Together with her five-year-old son, whom she has from her previous marriage, she made her way to Ternopil, a city in western Ukraine. So we had a call, and I asked her how she was doing. I'm in anticipation, she tells me. But not only for her husband's return. She's actually expecting a baby. Five months into her pregnancy, she jokes that this is probably the worst timing ever to welcome a child. She met Maxim online via Badu, one of those dating apps, around a year ago. They got married just five months later. A few years back, Maxim was a Marine and was deployed to multiple rotations, but eventually he joined Azov, known for its tougher training and discipline, which was what Maxim wanted. The regiment was also based in Mariupol, where Olena lived at the time, so the move just altogether made sense for the both of them. When the war began, of course, Maxim stayed behind to defend his city. For the first few weeks, he texted Olena every day. But eventually, the fighting got more intense and the internet more and more scarce and Maxim began disappearing. Once, they lost contact for almost two weeks. In early April, he was already based at Azovstal, the last Ukrainian stronghold in the city. The regiment wasn't yet confined to the planned bomb shelters and would go out on missions within the city. But soon, they could no longer leave the steel plant. Elena says Maxim told her that he really missed having bread, pastries, and other desserts. They'd often talk about all of the dishes Elena will cook for him when her husband is finally home. He said he really wanted a tiramisu, for example. There was also, of course, no way to shower. So Maxim's arms and face were black from gunpowder. He barely slept, and on those rare times when Elena managed to video call him, he looked extremely exhausted, with large dark circles under his eyes. Like everyone at Azovstal, for weeks, Maxim barely had anything to eat. He eventually started almost avoiding the topic of food and his messages with Elena altogether. But she understood everything, anyway. All Elena knows about her husband now is that he's alive, he's not injured, and according to Ukrainian officials, he's in prison in Olenivka, a village in Russian-occupied territory near Donetsk. Unfortunately, though, his relatively good health means that it will probably take him longer to come home, as those badly injured usually have priority in similar prisoner swaps. As I talked to her, 
I couldn't help but notice how calm and collected Elena was. I mean, I didn't imagine she'd break down crying at me mentioning her husband or something. But I really still was in awe of her faith and her almost unbreakable hope that somehow Ukrainian officials will get all of these soldiers out. That it's just a matter of time, you know, almost like a simple bureaucratic hurdle. We have to come together to get them out of there, she said. Because this isn't the end yet. Not with Azovstal fighters and not with the war. It's really not yet time to relax or cry about. That will come later, maybe, with time. Hello? Recording in progress. This is Lisa, a 19-year-old from Mariupol as well. She escaped the city alone back in March. Her family, though, was too scared to leave under constant shelling and airstrikes, so they stayed behind. They're still there, trapped in a city with basically no utilities, food or water, along with other 100,000 Ukrainians. Lisa's boyfriend is this 20-year-old guy named Ivan, or Vanya for short who's been a part of the Azov regiment since he was 18. When I looked at his photos, I remember feeling like the world's worst injustices just came on crushing at me altogether in that one moment. I mean, this guy, this young ginger guy wearing a flannel and a sort of a hipster-looking black beanie, you know, my age, he really is the last person in the world who should be spending his youth amidst a war, first at besieged Azov Stalin, now in Russian captivity. Lisa says she doesn't know much about him now. She knows he's in the Russian-controlled territories in the east, probably at a prison where all the other fighters from Azovstal were most likely taken. She also said he isn't injured. But when I pressed her on this, it turned out what she really meant was that he just hasn't lost any of his limbs. I'm doing okay, he told her, other than my mind going crazy and being hit by shrapnel just a bit. But all my limbs are in place, and that's already good enough. The bunker where Vanya stayed didn't have any internet, so he'd have to make his way to the other side of Azovstal under non-stop bombardment and shelling to send Lisa and his family a simple message, just saying that he's alive. It was too dangerous, of course, so he only popped up online once or twice every other week. But through Vanya, Lisa also had a lot of friends within the Azov regiment. So during Mariupol's siege, she stayed in touch with them too, and we tried piecing together what life was like for them at the plant. So Vanya and other fighters gave most of their food to the kids, elderly and other civilians that were sheltering there. Sometimes Vanya would make instant noodles, give them to a civilian, and just drink that broth that was left from them. And just like Maxim, eventually Vanya just stopped talking about food because, well, there was barely any left. If he slept for at least 20 minutes, it was basically a miracle for him, he'd tell her. Hundreds of his fellow soldiers were badly wounded, and some told Lisa that all they had left was just aspirin. Both Vanya and Lisa 
lost many friends at Azovstal. Lisa sort of online, while Vanya just next door to him. Just over a month or two ago, Lisa told me they were all sitting together at a military base, drinking coffee, but all of that is over now. You're sitting there at a bunker, she says. It's somewhere near you lays the body of your friend. And he isn't alone. There are many of them. They spoke last on May 16th, just a few days before all the fighters were evacuated from Azovstal. Vanya told Lisa that he may disappear. But don't worry, he said. I'll be all right. The best case scenario for Ukraine is to eventually negotiate a prisoner swap and exchange Azovstal defenders for captured Russian soldiers. But the Kremlin's rhetoric suggests that it's too early for those discussions. There are signals that the Russian government wants to hold trials for Ukrainian soldiers, while some even suggested designating Azov as a terrorist organization. Whatever the outcome, Azovstal will surely go down on history books as not only one of the defining moments of this war, but also as a symbol of Ukrainian strength and perseverance. Trapped, outnumbered, and hungry, Ukrainian soldiers were willing to sacrifice their lives to defend our land, our freedom, and our democracy. The least we can do is to keep their legacy alive until they come home. Here is one of Azustel's defenders, Katerina, otherwise known as Tashka or Birdie, singing a Ukrainian folk song from the bunker in the final days of the siege of Azovstal. Thank you for listening. І словом я гонів, з'єднав нас біль, по втраті України кормив нас змів, і здійснав ворогів. І ось ми йдемо у бою життєвому, тверді міцні, не зламні як дані, бо плач не дав свободи ще нікому, а хто бо. Той здобуває сліп.